David has asked me if I would kindly take a look at the book of Hebrews. Let me tell you now that if you preached it thoroughly and extemporaneously from beginning to end, we'd be here three years. We're not going to do that. I, I might get uh, six or eight short bites at the cherry. And so we're not going to study the whole book word for word. Instead, we're going to cherry pick. And that means sometimes we'll jump around and sometimes we'll just look at one passage. So last week we had an introductory session and today in a sense is, is, is a bit more of that. Uh, I spoke about last week about the, the difference between the new wineskin and the old wineskin and what a, what a wineskin is. You know, it's a container that carries the goodness, the grace of God. That, my voice sounds a bit echoey here this morning. Someone will tune that up a bit maybe as we go along. Um, and so last week I gave you a fair bit of background of the epistle and it's basically this, if we can pull it into one thing. A lot of Jewish people, a lot of them, including a lot of priests, had become obedient to the faith. The church in Jerusalem was 100,000 people. We're talking big numbers. And mind you, Jerusalem was a city of a million people. Jewish people all through Judea, all through Galilee, Samaritans as well, and Jewish people. By this time, of course, in history, Jewish people were already scattered all over the world. In fact, the population of the Roman Empire was 10% Jewish and they were everywhere. And uh, the gospel had gone out everywhere and the apostles, when they went out, they first went to the synagogues and preached because they had to get these people into Christ. And of course, Jesus had predicted judgment was coming upon Jerusalem and that the temple would be totally destroyed. He'd predicted that. And so obviously that was an early part of the preaching of the gospel to all these Jewish people. Flee, the wrath of God is coming. Flee to Christ. The name of the Lord is your strong and mighty tower. He is the only one for our salvation. He's the son of David, you know. God declared him Lord and Christ by raising him from the dead. But judgment is coming the judgment of Christ. Christ enthroned above, he himself is coming to destroy this city. That was part of the gospel preached to Jewish people everywhere. Time goes by. Now, a whole lot of Jewish people don't believe this. And so there's a lot of argument. There's a mighty lot of persecution from unbelieving Jews to believing Jews. But as 30 years and more go past, the, the arguments are turning to scoffing. Ah, where's the coming? You know, you said he would come. You know, where's all that you said? You know, and at the same time, persecution is now rising severely against Christians, but not against Jews. And J- Jews who've become Christians can escape that by going back to Judaism. So that's the scenario. And whoever wrote the book of Hebrews has done this masterful job of explaining why Jewish people should and must be Christians. Now, because of that, it gives us tremendous insights into Christ. So this is the background. And um, the, the one verse that we hung upon last week and which I put it up again for you today, Hebrews 8 verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained, um, somebody put these scriptures up for me, Hebrews 8, 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Now this idea of better promises is what we're going to explore a bit more And uh, so here's a bit more background with respect to all of that. Everything in Judaism was God-given, but in the New Covenant and in Christ, it all gets a big upgrade. Not only is it a huge upgrade, it now looks completely different. Even the rules have changed. What was there previously was God-given and it was declared by Paul to have been spiritual and holy and good. The trouble was it had no power except to condemn. 
He can tell you what the right thing was and then condemn you for not doing it. No real power to help you do it. You could only find power even under the old covenant if you put faith in God with prayer and worship. You could find it, and a lot of people did. But a lot did not combine it with faith. But everything that was in Judaism had to be upgraded because it was a temporary copy of the real thing. It wasn't the real thing itself. Everything in Judaism, the the tabernacle or later the temple, the priesthood, the altar, the sacrifices and all the furnishings, the the robes and all, all 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 the trappings of the whole thing were actually copies or shadows or types of the real thing. They weren't the real thing themselves. They never ever were the real thing. They were temporary. They were object lessons. But it was put in place because the human race had to be taken on a journey of understanding and a whole lot of things had to be put in place before Christ could come. But eventually, what was temporary and just an imitation was replaced with the real one, the thing it was pointing to all along. For example, and this is an easy one for Christians to follow, the sacrifices of Judaism, which were animal sacrifices and you know bulls were killed their blood poured out goats were killed lambs blood poured out and then there are other sacrifices too they bring grain offerings and all kinds of things drink offerings would be poured out every single one of these offerings sin offerings uh, peace offerings fellowship offerings every single one of them was a symbol of what Jesus was going to provide And when Jesus came and suffered, was rejected, was hated, was betrayed, suffered, uh, was whipped, was mocked, crown of thorns, uh, was nailed to the cross, spear pierced his side, he was buried. All of that was the real sacrifice for sin of which all the other sacrifices were Copies or imitations or shadows is probably better. Types is a technical term for it. And the type had to be fulfilled. Now, of course, there were also types in Judaism that we fulfill. The priests brought sacrifices to God. We bring sacrifices. We worship. We give thanks. We, we give money. We give time. We serve other people. We love people. We love the saints. These, these are the sacrifices we still offer. But we offer them in Christ. We don't offer them as we do these things so that we earn brownie points. No, we do them because our lives have been transformed. We're so filled with love. Oh, let's do the will of God, help other people. It's a different deal. However, Christ's sacrifice replacing those sacrifices is an example of something real replacing what was temporary, but everything in Judaism was a temporary symbol which had to be upgraded with the real thing. So it wasn't a case, it was not a case of Christianity being a different religion. In other words, one religion being replaced by another, you know, a slightly better one replacing a slightly not as good one, no. It's the same God, the same Christ, the same call to holiness, the same ultimate ultimate historical plan of salvation, but it is the real thing replacing the temporary. Now, this is what you've got to bear in mind because replacement in some quarters is an ugly word. And so it's better to think of an upgrade than a replacement, probably. So, um, and and not only that, it was the real one that was promised from the beginning. So the covenant with Abraham was real. But the covenant made at Sinai was temporary and it was put in place as a childminder. So here is the Lord has all these people he's wanting to work with and he puts the covenant of law in place to, to take care of them and carry them forward historically until Christ can come. It's a childminder. Uh, the New Testament says this. to to bring us to Christ. Anyway, that is why in the the book of Hebrews, 
we have laid out for us this, this wonderful explanation, wonderful argument of what it's all about as it's best explained to Jewish people. But as it turns out, it's the most wonderful explanation to us. And so what you find in the constantly being repeated in the book of Hebrews is how much Christ is better than and superior to all these other things. I gave you a list last week. Here's the list again. He's superior to angels, superior to Moses. Better, he's a better high priest. It's a better priesthood. We have a better tabernacle. It's a better ministry. We have a better covenant. There are better sacrifices. It's a better blood, better promises. We have a better hope. Uh, it's a better law. We, we serve God on a better mountain and it's a better altar. All of those things specifically are mentioned in the book. So uh, let's, let's quickly look at a few scriptures from the book itself. Hebrews 8, verse 8 to 9. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is a quotation printed in the book of, or it's a citation in the book of Hebrews from the prophet Jeremiah, from a Jewish prophet, declaring that God is going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, because by this time the kingdom had been, had, was, was, was divided in two kingdoms. And he says, it will not be like, this is a very important word, verse 9, same God, same people he's reaching out to, but it will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers. And he's talking about the Sinai covenant, not the one he made with Abraham. Because it says, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. And then that leads us a few verses later to this statement in verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant. He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, these are amazing words. When do you think these words were written a mere five to ten years prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and the total, total destruction of the temple and everything in it? Ready to vanish away. So he's declaring that the prophecy of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus as of 30 plus years before is about to be fulfilled with the complete abrogation of the Levitical economy and the whole Old Testament system uh, we call Judaism as a proper approach to God. It's about to vanish away. And it did. Within a few years of these words being written, uh, that astounding a historical event took place. Um, one more quote, Hebrews 7, 18 to 19. For on the one hand, a former government covenant, a commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So this is a very important background. I'm not quite done with background, but uh, recently I was in another part of Australia and um, there's a Christian group that has been looking to uh, upgrade their real estate and they've been looking at a property which the, the building on the property is called the Land of Promise. And of course, they were seriously considering, you know, whether they're buying this for the ministry or not. And they, the leaders wanted to do it. And, and they'd asked me and I was there and saw it. And, and you know, you know I, I wasn't sure. I prayed about that for months. Hazen did too. But in the end, the Lord made it so clear. He, he wanted them to move ahead. And uh, so that when I was with them recently, I took this question up because this is a ministry in which in in years past, there's been some confusion over, you know, you know, Judaizing things, shall we say. And it's anathema to us to Judaize the gospel. So I, I not only said to them, look, I, I really felt the Lord was in that, 
But I said, here's an interesting subject. I said, what does the expression or the phrase land of promise mean for Christians? Now, we know what it meant for Jews. Uh, the Lord had said to Abraham, he was, he was going to uh, the people in which he traveled as a sojourner and lived in tents. He was going to give it to his children to live in, and he did. And, he, and in the first covenant at Sinai, he said he was going to give them that land. But when you read the fine print, it wasn't given to them to own. And it wasn't given to them permanently. It was given to them to live in as tenants. And the Old Testament made it clear repeatedly they were tenants in the land. And the Old Testament also made it clear repeatedly that unless they maintained their honor for the Lord, uh, the land would spew them out. That if they turned to idols, the land would spew them out. That expression is used numbers of times. And so it was conditional. And... Um, and there's a whole history there. What was interesting is that the land did in fact spew them out and the Babylonians came, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, carted a lot of them off as, as refugees, as exiles. Years later, some of them were restored. Not all of them. This, had, this, this, this began the placing of Jewish people all over the world, which was preparation for the gospel, actually. But, but they, many of them were restored and they rebuilt the city, rebuilt the temple. But in that restoration, which had been prophesied, the Lord said to them, you have to share the land with the foreigners. It was a new requirement. The land is not exclusively yours. So what, it was never theirs to own. They could only live there on condition and it was never theirs alone. So these are all principles of the Old Testament, not the New. And then it gets even more interesting because all of a sudden you've got Jewish people living all over the world, but Judaism required that uh, they worship in one place and that was the temple in Jerusalem. You're supposed to go up there three times a year and worship. Well, now this is getting increasingly difficult, besides which... The whole, the whole ethos, the whole, the whole spiritual belief system of Judaism in those days was uh, you were more blessed if you were born in the land. The idea was to live in the land, work in the land, bear fruit in the land, worship in the land, and die and be buried in the land. And you were more blessed if you were buried in the land. So the land was hugely, hugely important in the thinking of Jewish people. But now all of a sudden... It's convenient for Jewish people to live all over the world and make money. And in cities everywhere, you had lots of successful Jewish people. They would send money home to the temple, but uh, they didn't want to live there. <laughs> so all of a sudden, Jews had to rethink their theology of whether this was okay or not. And so you began to, to, to see develop you know, new streams of thought with respect to uh, all of that. Now, none of that is quite where we have to go today, but um, what does the land of promise mean for Christians? In the charismatic movement back in um, the heyday of it, you know, in the 60s, 70s, into the 80s, what you often heard reference to was an analogy that uh, involved the, the history of Israel. In other words, Egypt, the Red Sea, uh, the wanderings in the desert, the Jordan River, the Promised Land. Th this was taken as a common analogy for the Christian life. That living in Egypt was your life of living in sin before you were born again. And that when you were born again and baptized into Christ, this is what the getting through the Red Sea represented. And then being in the wilderness, well, this is now your struggle with sin as a new Christian or a young Christian. And, uh, you know, you're, here you are trying to sort out all the issues of the world, the flesh and the devil and overcome and find victory. But then the Jordan River was seen as analogous to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Oh, so now that the Christian is baptized in the Holy Spirit, they enter the land of promise 
And so Canaan, living in Canaan land, was thought of as life in the Holy Spirit, the victorious life conquering now, overcoming your enemies, taking the land, establishing yourself, enjoying life. And so this, this was the analogy used for the process or the progress of the Christian life. And it's pretty good. Now this, um, this living in the land then is, a, you know, the land of promise for Christians is analogous with reigning with Christ in life and being vic- having a victorious Christian life of faith. The, um, the first thing that Christians must come to grips with, the first thing that Jewish Christians as well, but every Christian, especially in this day when there are so many confusing things taught about Israel, the first thing that all of us really need to come to grips with is that the true Israel is Jesus Christ. Now, can I show you this from Scripture? There's, a, there's one simple thing that is, that is a, a strong representation of this. And it is that in the Old Testament, Israel was often referred to as a vine that God had planted. I'll show you a couple of scriptures here. For example, Psalm 80, verse 8 to 9. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. So this is just one of many. Another is Hosea 10, 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. Uh, These are not good altars, by the way. Uh, As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Verse 2, their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. Uh, Here's Jeremiah 2. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? And then you get to Isaiah, the analogy changes. Instead of Israel being a vine, Israel is now a whole vineyard. And uh, here's, here's that example, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 of Isaiah. The Lord, it's the Lord speaking. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. A few verses later, verse 5, And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it should be trampled down. Two verses later, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So anyway, all I've done now is establish that the idea of the vine was Israel or vineyard. So, Uh, Do you remember also Jesus told a parable? He told more than one about vineyards. But do you remember this one from uh, Matthew 21? Longish parable. Here's just a bit toward the end. Jesus speaking, Matthew 21, 39. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Who was he talking about? What What they would do to himself. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Notice the word tenants. I said to you before, there were only tenants in the land. They said to him, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them, give him the fruits in their seasons. A few verses later, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Which brings us to this very telling verse, dear friends, all of that was to bring you to this focus. John 15 Verses 1 and 2, Jesus stands up and says, I am the true vine. Up to this point, remember, Israel had been referred to as the vine in the land. Now Jesus, but we've said to you all along, the true Israel 
is one man. And last week I said to you, I haven't shown you the scripture, but later on sometime, the New Testament is very clear that the promises given to Abraham about you know, what, what God would do for Abraham's seed, the seed was not plural, but singular. New Testament is very, very clear. It's not to many seeds, but to one seed, specifically Christ. In other words, the promises were made to Abraham and to Jesus. As in Psalm 2, ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, specifically said to Jesus. Back to John 15, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch that does not bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So now the analogy has shifted to Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. Jews may be branches, Gentiles may be branches, but the vine is Christ. And Christ will produce fruit. Judaism under the old covenant did not produce the fruit God was looking for, but in the end, after all, Christ is the true vine. He gets planted into the human race and everything changes. This is the upgrade we were looking for. And this is why you have scriptures like uh, Hosea, for example, prophesied, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But that's why Matthew chapter 2 says um, about Joseph, and he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Do you remember that Israel was 40, days in the world, uh, 40 years in the wilderness? Jesus, after he's baptized in the spirit, is 40 days in the wilderness. And the, all the early chapters of Matthew have the life of Jesus in, in parallel, tandem parallel along with the history of Israel. And uh, all these things are hugely meaningful. Now, let's put this put together. What are you to make of the land, the holy land, the land of Canaan, the land of promise? If you're a Christian, whether you are a Jewish Christian or a Gentile one, you have to shift the focus from being narrow and physical and temporary and geographical to being something that all of that symbolized something huge. The truth is your life is part of that land. To the Corinthians, Paul said, you are God's field. And there are many places in the New Testament where the Christian life is represented as land that produces fruit, land into which the word of God is sown. And you're meant to produce good things and not bad things. It talks much about us being trees of righteousness that produce fruitfulness all the while. And so whereas the Jewish notion was that the, the idea was to live in the land, be born in the land, bear fruit in the land, uh, and die in the land, instead all of a sudden we understand, no, you're meant to be born in the Lord and live in the Lord and bear fruit in the Lord and die in the Lord. So the land then, or living in the land, was an analogy for the Christian life. And so if, if you're going to live in Christ and be fruitful in Christ, uh, if you're going to live in the land, you've got to be in Christ. And this is what baptism is all about. You're baptized into Christ. You become one with him. And, and it is very holy. Now, in some circles, the word replacement is used as an epithet. You know, somebody will say, oh, that's just replacement theology. Well, not what I'm talking about, isn't it? When... when um, when people have a kind of a throw off against this thing they called replacement theology, generally they don't in their mind have very good definitions, nor much understanding of the Bible. It's an emotive thing. But what they're objecting to is the idea that the church has replaced Israel. Now, replacement is a complete misunderstanding as if the Israel and church were two different things. They're not two different things. If you go to the Old Testament and look very carefully at what Israel was, and then you look at what Christ had to say, 
and how he wanted to bring the true Israel out of the old covenant into the new covenant and the true Israel did come. All of the believing Jews, I mean, to begin with, Christ is, was Jewish, the apostles were Jewish, all the first Christians were Jewish, all the first churches were Jewish. And for 10 years, the gospel didn't even get preached to a Gentile. But all of a sudden they woke up to the fact that, oh, in Christ, the doors are open and everyone can come. And therefore the gospel went out and the Gentiles were added in. It's not, it's not that you have something completely different that has replaced. It's not the church replacing Israel. It's the true Israel moving from one wineskin to another wineskin, moving from old covenant Sinai type Judaism that required a temple and a physical priesthood and physical sacrifices and, and this piece of land and so on, shifting from that to what it always represented, that is, a whole new life in Christ. In other words, the true Israel once upon a time was contained within a container that is a wineskin called Old Covenant Judaism. The true Israel was shifted, the same true Israel shifted into a new container, a new wineskin called the body of Christ. Otherwise known as the church, but we're talking the body of Christ and Christ is the true Israel. If you're in Christ, Jew or Gentile, you're Israel. And the entire New Testament, from beginning to end, from Matthew chapter 1, clear through, to Revelation 22, consistently upholds what I am saying. So the true Israel has never been replaced. It's been shifted to a whole better way of operating it's a new wineskin. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The kingdom prophecies of the Old Testament are being fulfilled and they're being fulfilled in the exact way they had always been intended to be fulfilled, that is, in Christ. The person known as Yahweh in the Old Testament is known as the Lord in the New Testament and that is, as Jesus. And um, he, he was there in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word of God. And the Word was God. He's the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So, uh, finally, I have to bring you to th this point, but I don't have much time to dwell on it. For the Jews under the Old Covenant, and especially by the time of Christ, there were three things in their thinking, their religious thinking, that were supremely holy, and in their thinking, nothing in all the world was more holy than these three things. First of all, the land was holy. This was the land of promise. The, and so they saw this as holy land in a way that nothing, no other land in the world was holy. But then, at the, in the center of the land, in their mind, something even more holy than the land was the city of Jerusalem. Oh, now much more holy. But then in the center of Jerusalem, something much, much more holy again, the temple. And it's just like these, these circles, one inside another of what they thought of in terms of holy space or holy places. And of course, when you got inside the temple, even more holy places into the most holy of all. So to, in the Jewish mind, this was hugely important. We're, we're taking a look at the book of Hebrews. You can discuss the subject of what, what is the true way to see not only the land, but the city of Jerusalem and the temple. Uh, you, can, you can get a very, very clear Bible view of the Christian truth of this just from the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles. You can get it just from the Epistles. You can get it from the book of Revelation, but you can also get it from the book of Hebrews. And so what I wanted to do in these last couple of minutes was just show you in the book of Hebrews. Now, 
The significance for us in the book of Hebrews is that this was a, a lengthy exhortation written specifically to Jewish people who'd come to Christ but were in danger of drifting off. And the book of Hebrews has classic Christian positions with respect to the land, the city of Jerusalem, and the temple. And uh, so just look, I don't have time for the detail, but a quick overview. I've already spoken to you about the land in general. Uh, here's, a, here's a few quick statements from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Your rest, see they thought you'd find rest in the land. The gospel truth is, you find your rest in Christ Jesus. That's worthy of, a, of another important message one day. Here's Hebrews 11, 9. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. What was the promise? Promise the land. But it says, for he was looking forward to the city that had foundations. In other words, he's looking for something far beyond the land, something bigger than the land, whose designer and builder is God. What is that city? See, that city is the new Jerusalem. It's a heavenly city built without hands. Here's Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and aliens in the earth. Notice that? Strangers and aliens in the earth. A lot of these people were already living in that land of Canaan. But no, strangers and aliens on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. In other words, it can't be found in the so-called promised land, even for people who live there. Verse 15. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. Let me tell you, there's, there's not one Jewish Christian who had the gospel in the first century who would have thought that it was um, normal or a godly thing to cling to the land and that, you know, what you did had to be in the land. No, suddenly they thought of the world. Gospel go out, all cities, all nations. This was Christ's intent, go into all the world. He said, you'll preach the gospel in, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Or any real Christian all of a sudden said, the whole thing is Christ's. And that means for you, your pro listen, your promised land is right where you live. It's your home, it's your family, it's your neighborhood, it's your business, it's your employment, it's your career, it's your future, it's your relationships, it's your marriage, it's your children, it's your potential. That is your promised land. You're in Christ, Christ has placed you and every single promise in scripture has to be applied to life as it is. And so you seek, you seek the will of God right where you are. With respect to the city, mm. well, there's a fair bit from Hebrews could be said about that, but how can I summarize this? Um, Hebrews 13, verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Now this is outside the gate of the city in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come. New Testament has a lot to say about the Jerusalem above is our mother. That Jerusalem above, by the way, is the body of Christ also. It's, it's the church of the living God. We are the city of Jerusalem. As, as the book of Hebrews makes clear in Hebrews chapter 12, where it says you've not come to something that can be touched. In other words, something physical but you have come, well, I'll just read it, but you have come to Mount, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, who was he writing this to? Jewish Christians. You've not come into something physical, but you've come to the, the heavenly city. And um, that's all there in Hebrews 12, 22, 23. And finally, the temple in Hebrews. Um, look, 
most of the book of Hebrews is taken up with the idea of Christ being our high priest. Better sacrifices, better blood. These were functions of the Jewish temple previously. But if Christ is now our high priest, what do we make of the temple? The New Testament makes two things very clear. First of all, that in the new Jerusalem and you are living stones being built together to be that city, it, it uses the analogy in two ways. Once, first of all, you and I being built up together are an eternal temple being built by God in the heavenlies. But the other thing is, when you get to a closer description of the, of the life of the New Jerusalem, what you find out is, in the city of the New Jerusalem, there is no actual temple building because it says Christ himself, the Lamb of God, and God himself are the temple. So once again, the physical things were simply pointing to object lessons for the spiritual things that were to come. And the book of Hebrews really bears this out, that we have a high priest, but he serves now in heaven. He entered the heavenly places. Now, do you, look, I've got to close on this point. Do you remember for Jewish people under the old covenant, they, they developed this very heavy concept of holy space. The land was holy. Jerusalem even more holy. Oh, the temple even more holy. And all of life revolved around that. The message of the New Testament is they were temporary holy ideas pointing to holy places that are real in heaven. The real tabernacle in heaven. And this is where Christ, because of the blood shed on the earth, was able to go for us beyond the veil. And we have this hope that enters in beyond the veil. Our hope is Christ. And that's why, um, that's why we have the couple of verses I'm going to read to you now in closing. Here's Hebrews 6, uh, 19 to 20. And I want you to notice in these verses the use of the term holy places. Hebrews 6, 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now we jump down. Hebrews 9, 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into, you see what it says? The holy places. This is in heaven. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing the eternal redemption. And then uh, a few verses later, Hebrews 9.24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. In other words, not into those that were built by men on earth which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And that brings me to one last scripture. This is the finale in which we find the word term holy places used again, but this time it makes it clear that you are meant to enter those holy places in heaven. Not after you die, that'll happen too now. Because Christ has entered, you are meant to enter now. And you are, not only that, you are supposed to be bold to enter. You're supposed to be confident to enter. So this is kind of like the finale of, of what we've been getting at this morning. So I want you to take careful note as we read this, Hebrews 10 and from verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God that has drawn near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without, favoring, uh, without wavering for he who promised is faithful. All through the book of Hebrews, you not only have a whole lot of teaching, 
you then have applications. You have many places where it either, either encourages you to enter in or warns you if you fail to enter in. And we'll look at those some other time. But here's a classic ex- exhortation saying, we have confidence to enter into the holy places. When you pray, whether you know it or not, you are standing in the holy places talking to a living God. You're meant to take that opportunity more often. You're meant to have a heart that says it is a privilege to speak to God. It is a holy privilege. And every one of you are meant to take a hold of that, make it your daily activity. Open the scriptures, get in the Holy Spirit. That is just by faith, put yourself there knowing that when you do, when you open the scriptures and begin to read, when you begin to speak to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus, you are in the holy places and he is listening to you. Dear friends, do what it says. Have confidence to enter the holy place. So as Christians, we, we enjoy the history of what's happened on earth. We respect it. We'd love to go and see the archaeology and enjoy it all, but it's history. It really happened. These things happened in real places with real people, but the meaning was eternal and spiritual and you can be anywhere in the world and get the full benefit of it all. Holy space is not geographical. Holy space is both what is within you and what you are within when you are in Christ. Just remember, he is the true Israel. I am the true vine. You can't get more blunt language than that. Praise God, and we're branches in the vine. So stay in Him. Do you remember He said, if you abide in me, if you abide in Christ, you're abiding in the vine, which means you are living in the land, the land of promise. You're going to bear fruit in the land. Praise God. Thank God that's what these things mean. You know, how hopeless it would be. I I had a spiritual leader tell me years and years ago that they had They had some people, one woman in particular said to them, oh, if only I was Jewish, then I could be closer to Jesus. That is just rubbish talk. This is nothing like the gospel. That is just religious sentiment. We flee a long way from that. We don't Judaize the gospel. We We don't attach, you know, heavy sentimental religious meanings to physical and tangible things. You've got to find the reality and the reality is Christ and Christ alone. It's, it's the cross and nothing more. You know, Paul just about turned himself purple trying to say to the Galatians, you know, stop mixing things with the, with the cross of Jesus. You know, they, he, he was angry about it. You foolish Galatians, you know, who's bewitched you? You know, it's the cross alone. <laughs> and so, dear friends, just be very clear in your hearts the, 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 the Bible message upholds very clearly all that you've been taught about the place of Jesus, the importance of Jesus, and that uh, whether Jew or Gentile, you are accepted in the beloved and you should have confidence to enter the holy places. So make it your business before the sun goes down. Do some entering of holy places. Uh, do it at home. Let's, let's pray together now. Father, I thank you that you hear our prayers. And Lord, even right now, everyone stand with me. Just stand in these moments. We're in, we're in holy places. When we do this, when we, when we sing, when we worship, when we serve one another, oh, you're in, you're in the holiest of holies. Here we are before the living God. Lord, we come. Living God, our Heavenly Father, we come. In the name of Jesus, I pray for every person standing here before you today and I ask that you'd wash them afresh with the the washing of the water of the Word and the power of the blood of Jesus. Wash all their sins away. Lord, not only their sins, wash away every preconceived idea that is not Christ. Wash away any mixture. Wash away poverty of of motivation. 
Wash away, O oh Lord, the, the love of unclean things. Wash away all those things that keep us weak and helpless. And Holy Spirit, come. We stand before you today bold and confident of our inheritance. Holy Spirit, come and fill the believers. Fill them. Fill them with strength. Grant to every believer here today the strength of the Lord Jesus. Courage to believe. Strength to confess. Liberty in their heart by which they rejoice and sing and speak the truth. Now, Lord, grant that every one of these would bear fruit like, like more than before. Bearing more fruit. That the, the ground of their lives would be fruitful. Their days would be fruitful. Let the Spirit of the Lord rest upon this church and upon all the body of Christ in this city. For, for this is holy land. Our lives are holy land. We're God's field. Lord, I thank you. Now, Lord, come. Do in us all that you desire to do to make us more fruitful, more profitable, more holy, more Christ-like. I pray for every one of these that they might receive all the more fully the benefits of Christ. We, we seek, Lord, not to forget your benefits. Fill each one with the Holy Spirit and with joy in believing God. And so I bless them and I bless their homes and families. We bless our children growing up. We bless the days to come. And I ask, Lord, you'd continue to open our minds to understand Scripture that we might be all the more fruitful in serving and in believing and in worship and in testimony, make our lives fruitful. Lord, I thank you that you hear our prayers and we pray that more and more people around us would be saved and come to the light of Christ. For this, O oh Lord, we pray and believe today in Jesus' name. Amen.